let me bring up one more window. Because you mentioned that, and I want to be ready. Okay. Alright. I think I'm good. I don't remember what I'm supposed to mention, but whatever. Hello, listeners. Welcome to the Non-Toxic Fanboys podcast, where the name is aspirational, and where the saga of Dune Watch is now transitioning to Dune Listen, where we return to our roots and journey through the scores of the Dune adaptations we've been examining in the past months. I am Glenn, and with me as always is Scott. Scott, are you ready for a new score show? I suppose. At least I don't have to watch anything for this one. We are going to be starting with the miniseries in this episode, and in the next we're going to do the movies. So let's get going with the 2000 miniseries Frank Herbert's Dune with the score by Grim Ravel. Now, let's analyze what's working for us. Oh, wow, your opinion is that low? (laughs) I think there's a pretty good idea in this score to have different musical styles, different instrumentation styles for the different worlds of the story. You have different types of music used for the Atreides at the beginning of the story, used for Dune as a planet and the Fremen, and another one again for the Emperor and all of those machinations. The very beginning of the series, the first presentation of the main theme, which flows through a couple of those styles following Paul's story, The first appearance of that theme is noble, it's on the horns, and then later on it moves into the style of instrumentation that you have for the Fremen and that you have for Arrakis, which is much more stereotypically ethnic, in air quotes. It's very deserty. A lot of warbling woodwinds. It's very deserty, yes. I think that's something we can discuss with all of these adaptations, is how deserty the music gets, because it happens to a different extent in each one, I think. But that's definitely one of the styles at work here, and the mode that the theme ultimately winds up in, such as it is. 
And that, I think, is a fine enough idea, to have different markers identifying the different players in the game. There's also more of a, I don't want to say Baroque, but kind of a string-based, more intricate style for the Emperor and his machinations that I don't think made it on the soundtrack album as much, but it's definitely present in the series. That's a fine idea, and it helps set the mood while you're watching the show. But ultimately, you still need to, like, have some actual musical content within those different styles. Like, you're not just trying to fill the background with ambient musical noise. You want something there with some substance that is enough to, like, actually make you want to listen to it. And that's where I find this score just to be sorely lacking, is having any substantial content that makes me want to listen to it. Like, I suppose it's functional in the sense that it helps set the mood for the different factions using the different styles, but there's nothing memorable about any of this. There's nothing interesting about any of this. There's nothing about any of this that makes me want to pay attention to it. There's nothing about any of this that makes me ever want to listen to it again. (laughs) This score is like one of those infomercials for a hydrophobic spray. Put this shit on your car and the rain will just sheet right off. That's what my attention does when I try to listen to this score. I'll tell you, my enjoyment to this score increased about tenfold when I stopped trying to make myself pay attention to it and just let it drift in the background while I did other stuff. Like, just have it on while I'm reading or have it on while I'm doing other things that have my attention, rather than having to actually pay attention to every bit of it. That increased my enjoyment tenfold, at least. Well, in terms of its primary purpose and in terms of its primary function, yeah, it is mainly tone setting, which was something that the series really needed to set different tones in instances where that might be needed to support all of the other things that the series was doing. I think there are a few highlights mostly built around that main theme, which at least has a couple of variations that I think are interesting. But on the main, in terms of something to listen to, like, as a dedicated, isolated experience, no, it's not as thrilling as it perhaps might be. The main theme of this show that begins with that sort of four-note descending pattern right at the beginning, it reminded me of something, and it took me a while to figure out exactly what it is, because we've gone over this in our other score shows. Everything reminds me of something, and then I can never figure out what, because I've listened to too much stuff. Yes. But it took me a while, and eventually I puzzled it out. And let me see if you have the same reaction. I'm going to send you this in the instant messenger so that you can listen to it in real time, and then I'll play it for our listeners. Oh, jeez. Here is the main theme from Frank Herbert's Dune by Graham Revell. And then here is the main title from something else.
and let's see if you notice the same similarity that I did. Oh my god, wait. <laughs> Are you serious? <laughs> hey folks, Editor Scott here. I just realized listening back to this that we never actually identified the second music clip we've been using here. It's a pretty famous piece, but we're only using a small bit of it, so for anyone that didn't recognize it, the main title to something else that I've been playing is from the 1939 film Gone with the Wind, composed by Max Steiner. Now back to our usual ridiculousness. Like, really? It took me so long to figure out what it was. At first, I thought it was North and South, but then I'm like, no, wait, that's not fucking North and South. No. Eventually, my brain made the connection. <sighs> um, I don't even know where to go from there. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I have no particular point. I'm just, I noted the similarity and I wanted to share it with you and with our listeners. Yeah, sure. It's always a journey. I never quite know where you're going to take me. <laughs> this is the most enjoyment I was able to extract from this score, was little bits of it that reminded me of other better things that I would rather be listening to. Aye, aye, aye. That was honestly a significant roadblock to me trying to listen to this score when I was trying to actually give it my attention, is that I would keep losing attention on the score and miss three tracks while I was daydreaming about listening to something else. <sighs> As I said, it's to an extent functional within the movie, but at the same time, the whole thing just sounds so generic. Like, there's nothing that makes you take notice and go, oh, that's interesting. There's nothing that grabs your attention and won't let go. There's nothing that, at least for me, there's nothing that makes me want to listen to this. It's just sort of there. And when it's just sort of there as the background music of a television show that I'm watching, eh, it's fine. When it's just sort of there as a musical experience that I'm trying to give my full attention to, that is not nearly enough. There are definitely aspects that are a little generic, especially the aforementioned, uh, quote-unquote, deserty music. I was going to say it was a style that was very in vogue at the time, but it's very in vogue for some scores still, actually. I mean, it's not like this score is devoid of content. It has a main theme, it has a second theme they use for the Paul and Chani relationship.
several of the action cues are very similar. They sort of play off the same idea. They sound very closely related to each other. Just all of it just feels so generic to me, you know? I said before, there's nothing in this score that, like, really makes me take notice and go, oh, that's something interesting. That's something I want to listen to again. I see what you mean. The finale of the score, the final presentation of that theme, is one of the pieces that years ago made it into my individual tracks I set aside to listen to, directory. Like I said, I don't think it's devoid of highlights, but I see what you mean, for sure. Alright. Well, when you say you found yourself daydreaming about other scores, I think one of the ones you were probably daydreaming about is the next one that we're going to cover. The Children of Dune score by Brian Tyler. Would it be fair to say 
that including Brian Tyler's score for Children of Dune in our Dune Listen addendum is most of the reason why we decided to cover the miniseries in the first place. It's most of the reason I suggested it. <laughs> yes. Absolutely. <laughs> Please, can we just listen to a Dune score that's good? Well, I mean, there are a couple of those, but I guess we'll get there. What is the first thing that comes to mind for you when you think of the Children of Dune score? I think I know the answer to this. I mean, obviously, it's the Summon the Worms track. That's like the showcase of the entire thing. They've made it track one. It's the big epic rendition of the primary theme that's used throughout the miniseries, just like cranked up to 15. It's the track that introduced me to Brian Tyler, frankly. I mean, much like this miniseries introduced me to James McAvoy, it introduced me to Brian Tyler. And that is the track, essentially, that did it. Like, the whole thing is great, but that is the showcase. Yeah, I think in the fan community, too, Brian Tyler kind of burst onto the scene with this score. It's grand, and it's propulsive, and it's emotional. I mean, I think we're going to gush as much about this as we did about James McAvoy in the last episode, frankly. I was thinking as I was going through this that this is a 36-track CD, and there's probably 15 tracks that we could just spend 20 minutes gushing over. <laughs> like, the whole thing really is awesome. One of the words that came to mind the most when I've been listening to this over the last few days is dynamic. The whole score is very dynamic. It moves between all of the moods of the show, everything it has to convey, and remains interesting, remains attention-grabbing, remains at a very high standard throughout the length of it. Well, there's two things that I think of as sort of examples of that. One is a note that I made at one point that some of these tracks that aren't thematically focused, they're just sort of there and they have a rhythm and they get the job done at filling time, and they're just as stereotypically deserty, Middle Eastern-y as some of the stuff from the Grammarvel Dune score, except they just don't feel as empty to me. Like, there's at least something there to listen to. There's at least something there to keep your interest for the length of the track. Even if it's not a theme you've grown to love, even if it's not an interesting byplay between two or three different ideas he's working with, there's at least something there where you, like, pay attention for the three minutes, you know? At the same time, there are more ideas that are used a lot more than just that main theme. Like, there are a few other things that he plays with throughout. Well, the other thing I was going to say is that he uses this theme that's, like, very soft and gentle and is used a lot for Paul and Chani in the Messiah episode for their relationship and the impending tragedy of the end of their relationship. And like I said, it's very soft and gentle and sensitive
and it's the exact same thing as the giant bombastic awesome summon the worms track It gets varied a lot, yes. I mean, I love the smaller, gentler versions. There's one for the twins toward the end of the children section of the story after Leto comes back. It's just sensitive. It's being kind of plucked out on a harp, if I recall, and it's just enthralling. Yeah, the last track at the end of episode three is exactly what you're talking about. That theme just played sort of very gently plucked out. I don't know if you're thinking of a different track or if they just do it in multiple places. I'd have to go back and listen again to verify, but it does happen a couple of times, I think. But yeah, it's just so soft and sensitive and gentle when it's not being used for like a giant, bombastic, epic, awesome worm taming scene. <laughs> Like, it took me a while when I first started listening to this to even realize that was the same tune. Really? It just, it sounds so fucking different. Well, I mean, they're really different variations, for sure. I really do like the gentler uses. And there's a lot more of it even in the movie than there is on the CD. And it's on the CD several times. But listening to the CD almost makes me feel sadder for the Paul and Chani tragedy that's coming at the end of the episode than I did when I was watching the episode. Listening to this score again, and again, the raw emotional qualities of it really, really stand out to me. And I think that's a large part of the impression that I mentioned when we talked about the miniseries, that the human relationships were much more at the forefront of that than the previous miniseries. I think the score is a big part of that. You know, really accentuating relationships between the characters and the roles that they have in the larger foreboding tragedy of a lot of elements of the story. I think looking through our notes, how many times do we write foreboding? Like 60 or 70 times? Well, there's, in addition to that main theme that we've talked about, it's two major modes. There's at least two other themes that are like both just foreboding. Yes. Like there's one that I think is associated with Saitail or maybe with the Tylaxu or either or because Saitail is the only Tylaxu that actually appears in the movie. 
But it's just this descending figure that sort of reminds me of some of the ominous music from Titanic. But, like, it's hard to describe that as anything other than foreboding. And then there's this other theme that I'm still not entirely sure what it means, but it shows up a bunch of times, and it is also primarily foreboding. Yeah, there are a few of those. There's the one that you're talking about, which is primarily reminiscent of Titanic, that stands out to me very much. There's another that has a big, big rendition when Faradin betrays his mother and she gets off her last snide remark at Jessica and then leaves. There is a large flourish of that foreboding theme. And there's another one that I think is associated with the Fremen. It appears a lot when we're seeing Othim and his daughter, when Sightail first goes to them. It appears a lot of times, I think, for the Fremen and for the Siege. which is kind of nostalgic and kind of tragic. 
I think that's reflecting the sense that some of the characters have, that the Fremen have lost something, that they need to return to their old ways, like Stilgar says at the end. I think that kind of nostalgia plays into that. Well, I mean, if there's one way you could describe the stories of both Messiah and children, I think foreboding is a pretty good option. Uh, yes. Foreboding, tragic. Both stories are focused primarily at building up to the tragedy to come. Yes. And Brian Tyra captures that brilliantly. He really, really does. Like I say, he captures the human relationships. He captures the human emotions that we've been talking about with all of these adaptations. You have to find ways to kind of inject it into the story. And I think this is a huge, huge part of doing that. While at the same time, he takes on the scenes that you're talking about that have more epic proportions. I mean, obviously, he's well equipped for that, too. I feel like we don't have much to say after, holy shit, this is awesome. Yeah, uh, it good. (laughs) It was interesting listening to it this time, because I'm really bad at figuring out what bits are actually a theme, unless the score, like, beats me over the head with it. Especially something like this, like, do I remember that from three tracks ago, or do I remember that from the thousand other times I've listened to this score in the last 20 years? You know? Yes. But it's interesting listening to things more closely or listening to things with an eye toward analyzing them on the show. Like, I didn't even realize for a long time that the track that's called the main title that's used as the main title for two out of the three episodes, I never realized before that that theme actually shows up anywhere other than that one track. But it does get touched on a few times. He does really make great use of the pieces that he's moving around in the score, for sure. And there are some really, really good, like, one-off set-piece cues, too, that might only have, like, tiny elements of the themes, but really kind of stand on their own. The cue for the Carino hired goons trapping the worm uh, really stands out to me. That is one that can stick in my head for a very long time. just think about the particular like specific elements in that track it's predominantly that sort of desert e instrumentation that we've been talking about in these last couple of scores but the way that that's used and the energy in the piece really really makes it stick for me well the thing about that track is i don't know that that tune ever recurs but that style That instrumentation, that playing style, that sort of mode that the music is in, all of that does crop up in several other tracks. 
it gives the whole thing a very similar feel, even if there isn't a theme per se that's carried over in terms of the melody. Right. There's a lot of consistency in terms of the overall style, so it all remains of a piece. And the other piece that I didn't even realize recurred was the Inama Nushif sort of showcase track. which I guess may also be the first thing I think of when I think of this score. <laughs> Can one score have like three different things that's the first thing you think of? <laughs> but that is such a showcase singular track that I thought was a one-off, but it actually does come up a few other times, uh, most prominently in the finale, right at the very end. Yes. The last scene between Leto and Stilgar.
which is basically Inama New Sheaf, just the backing track with all of the foreground stuff sort of dropped out. Except I've heard that track so much that I hear it in my head anyway, which is a really interesting experience. Right, it's the melody without the vocals from the montage at the end of Messiah. And he does something actually very similar with the end title track from the first two episodes, which is basically Summon the Worms with a lot of the foreground brass dropped out, which is really interesting. It doesn't make it onto the CD, actually. There's an end title track on the CD that's not the end title to any of the episodes. But the end title from the first two episodes, I really do enjoy that. It's a unique take on that theme. It's an interesting edit. I'm pretty sure it is technically just an edit of Summon the Worms with some of the orchestra parts remixed or mixed down or mixed up. But it is a very interesting edit of it, for sure. And I love, I absolutely love the end title piece on the CD. I think it just draws the whole thing to a close perfectly. It's this contemplative and tragic version of the main theme that I think is just perfect. I think a section of that track is more or less pretty similar to what is actually the end title for episode three. It sort of straddles the line between like the really soft and gentle renditions that are associated with the Paul and Chani story and Messiah and like the giant bombastic summon the worms version. 
that end title piece sort of straddles that line where it feels big, but it also feels softer and more contemplative. I think that's because when the piece grows into a larger scale, it kind of ascends on the strings. Like, it doesn't bring the brass in there as much, so it's not like an action-oriented, propulsive version of the theme, but it still grows to a larger scope as it ascends on the strings. I just love it so much. Yeah, that's my primary reaction to most of this score. Yeah, I was wondering if your primary contribution was basically going to be your intro to our episode on the Star Trek Eleven score. Well, that's the thought that I had. Yeah. Because I originally thought we'd be doing these scores in order. Like, you were the one that came up with the idea to, like, segregate them and do the miniseries together and then the two movies together. I thought we were just going to go in the order that we reviewed them. Mm-hmm. And so this would be the last one. So that I could come on and say definitively, this is the best one. (laughs) Except there's two we haven't even gotten to yet, but I'm still going to say definitively, this is the best one. Much like this is the best Dune adaptation, this is the best Dune score. (laughs) I mean, we'll talk about the others on the other show. Yeah, tune in for episode 67. Children of Dune was better than both of these. Prove me wrong. Oh, don't do prove me wrong. (laughs) There's no such thing as great house privilege. Prove me wrong. But I mean, here's how good this score is. As we said earlier, one of the main reasons I even suggested reviewing the miniseries at all was so that we could talk about this score. So that I could listen to this score. (laughs) (laughs) And when I was listening to the Graham Ravel score from the first miniseries, my mind kept drifting and losing attention because I was daydreaming about the upcoming opportunity to listen to this score. Oh my god. (laughs) There was nothing in that first miniseries score that measured up to me daydreaming about listening to Inama Nushif. (laughs) I mean, number one, fair. Number two, that's actually (laughs) far from my favorite part of this score, if I'm honest. It's good, it's fine, but so many of the other aspects of the score just stick with me. I think it's interesting that that piece uses Fremen lyrics that Tyler kind of pieced together from the small parts of the Fremen language that are in the books and is kind of modified from some of the Fremen that is in the books, because whatever Fremen is in the books, a lot of it is just dialects of Arabic. So I think it's interesting to use the constructed language like that so soon after the Lord of the Rings films and the Lord of the Rings scores. I think there's some influence from the way some of the vocal pieces were used in Fellowship of the Ring. I know some people at the time talked a bit about the enification of some scoring, And I think that's definitely kind of an easy listening, almost, feel that you can get from the piece. The vocal version, at least. I mean, if you want to try to tie it to the trend of the time, I guess you could. But I mean, doing lyrics to stuff in a score piece is not exactly new, you know? It's not like Lord of the Rings invented that. Well, no, of course. I'm talking about more of the... Well, first being in a conlang, when that was used so, 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 so much in Lord of the Rings, more than, like, anything else. And also, 
the overall style of the piece, sounding more contemporary, less orchestral, in the way that the Enya piece for Fellowship of the Ring and some of the pieces from something like Titanic and some other scores in recent years at that point, you know, had established a trend. Well, the Enya song from Fellowship wasn't even part of the score. I don't mean the credit song. I mean the one in the middle of the movie. I don't remember an Enya song in the middle of Fellowship. Yeah, for Aragorn and Arwen, once they get to Rivendell. Oh, they have... That was Enya singing that? Yeah. Hmm. I mean, I guess, but that's such a different style. I guess there might have been some influence there, but I think that's kind of grasping at straws to an extent. Like, why is he ripping off Enya and Fellowship and not ripping off Duel of the Fates? I didn't say anything about ripping off. I'm just saying there's a trend. And not ripping off Carmina Burana. And not ripping off The Exorcist. Mmm, kind of a different style. So is the Aragorn and Arwen scene. I don't know. I just, I don't quite buy that. That here's this thing that's very common in movie scores for decades, but this other movie happened to do it a couple of years before this other movie, and therefore one must be doing it because of the other. Like maybe there is an influence there, or maybe they were both subject to the same influence of the time, or they were just both part of the same tradition that goes back decades in movie scoring. And even if one was influenced by the other, who cares? It's fucking awesome. Like, I could barely remember the music from that Aragorn and Arwen scene, but I remember Inama Nushif so sharply, it distracts me from listening to other music. <laughs> I mean, if you're going to try to cite that as criticism, then, like, you'd be better off making the argument that, like, half of Brian Tyler's scores in subsequent years kind of sound like they're trying to sound like Children of Dune. Oh, well, I mean, the main theme from Children of Dune is something Brian Tyler used in, like, half of his scores for, like, ten years. I don't know that he actually uses the theme, but it just sort of sounds like it, you know? Oh, no, no, no. Look up the end titles from Bubba Hotep, please. Ha 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 
I trust you see what I mean. Oh, that's incredible. Oh, God. Why have you never shown this to me before? I love that. Oh, my gosh. That's incredible. So, yes. I thought you were just talking about shit like Thor 2, where it sounds like somebody gave him Children of Dune as a temp track and said, make something that sounds like this, but is legally distinct enough for us not to be sued by you. Yeah, the theme from Thor 2 kind of has the serial numbers filed off, and it's still very good. Yeah, I really like the Thor 2 score because it kind of sounds like Children of Dune. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's still very good. And yes, in Bubba Hotep, it's freaking incredible. And we talked before on the show about his 2017 score to the Power Rangers movie, which sort of sounds like Thor 2, which sort of sounds like Children of Dune. Yeah, on another show, I believe I once referred to it as the Marge Simpson pink dress of film score themes. And every version of it is at least pretty good. Yeah, I think I've compared him before to James Horner, where a lot of his scores sort of sound like each other, but they are also all awesome. <laughs> and this was the first one that I came into contact with was this Children of Dune score. The only bad thing I have to say about this score is that I'm not a fan of the presentation on the CD. Yeah, I figured. For one thing, it's in some sort of random order, so, like, to this day, there's tracks on the CD that I don't know what scene they come from. 
And also, I feel like there's so many little touches and so many renditions of that theme in the softer, gentler mode that are in the movie that just don't show up on the CD. And I mean, when you're doing a one CD release for a six-hour miniseries, I guess you're going to have to leave some things on the cutting room floor, but... As far as the structure of the CD, I think it's basically an eight-track demo reel, followed by more music from Children of Dune. So there's basically a decent representation of the things that the score does in that first section, and then you have a representation of the rest of the show in terms of making it flow as a listening experience. And frankly, I can't count how many times I've listened to this CD like you were saying a little while ago, so I think the presentation is successful. Well, I mean, it's fine to listen to, but like I said, it's exceedingly difficult in some places to match up what scene in the show is a particular track from. But I mean, I gotta say, if you look at those first eight tracks as like your Children of Dune sampler platter, that is like banger after banger after banger. You listen to those eight tracks, you're in for a treat. Exactly. And just look at him now. I mean, he's as successful as anyone working right now in film scores. He's doing great. I don't know why you sound like you're being sarcastic when you say that. I mean, he does like one or two scores almost every year. Whenever we do our Oscar roundups, he, he always pops up as somebody with a new score out. No, I'm not being sarcastic at all. And in terms of doing prominent films, yeah, he keeps getting assignments for huge action movies. No, he's absolutely been very, very successful. And like we've said, this was certainly the first time that I'd heard of him, and the first time that a lot of people had heard of him. So do you think we've gushed enough about the score, or is there, like, further you want to gush? Well, in conclusion, I would just like to say, score's pretty good. <laughs> personally? Personally? Just me. You might feel differently. Personally, I'm a fan. Yeah, if this is one that flew under your radar because you weren't watching Dune sequel adaptations in 2003, do yourself a favor and give it a listen. At least those first eight tracks, because that really is a lot of good stuff packed right up top. If you weren't watching Dune sequel adaptations in 2003, then my god, where were you? You haven't lived. <laughs> If you have any questions, comments, or suggestions for the show, you can find us at NontoxicFanboys on Twitter and Facebook, or you can email us at NontoxicFanboys at gmail.com. If you'd like to support the show, get episodes early, and hear an exclusive monthly behind-the-scenes podcast where we talk about the making of the show, you can do that at Patreon.com slash NontoxicFanboys. And you can find all of this info, plus every episode of the podcast, and all of our other accounts like our YouTube channel, our Twitch channel, and our Discord server, all listed at our website, nontoxicfanboys.com. The theme music to the podcast is Discovery by Alexander Nakarada. Other music used in this episode comes from the original scores to Frank Herbert's Dune, composed by Graham Revell, published by GNP Crescendo Records. Frank Herbert's Children of Dune, composed by Brian Tyler, published by Varese Sarah Band. Bubba Hotep, composed by Brian Tyler, published by Silver Sphere. Thor The Dark World, composed by Brian Tyler, published by Hollywood Records. Power Rangers, composed by Brian Tyler, published by Varese Sarah Band. 
The Lord of the Rings, The Fellowship of the Ring, composed by Howard Shore, published by Reprise Records. And Gone with the Wind, composed by Max Steiner, recorded by Charles Gerhardt and the National Philharmonic Orchestra, and published on RCA Victor. All of which are excerpted here for the purposes of review and critique. A full list of tracks cited is also in this episode's description. Thank you all for listening. We will see you next time. I told Boyce we were recording, so I don't know if he's going to poke his head in the door again to complain about the people he's arguing with on the internet about the merit of The Matrix Part 4. This time it's personal. He's arguing with people on the internet about the merit of The Matrix Part 4. Scott, can you hear me? Oh, he's coming to tell me some more. (laughs) Scott, can you hear me clearly? Yes. Have you seen the first three Matrix movies? Yes, although I have not seen either of the sequels since I saw them in the theater in 2003. Scott, listen to me. (laughs) I'm getting in an argument with somebody online about this. Yes, dear. (laughs) And the guy is telling me that he does not understand why Trinity has powers, when in the fucking first three movies, everything that Neil does is on the predication of his love for Trinity, and without Trinity, Neil cannot do Neil things. <laughs> well, without Trinity, he's dead like six he times He died over. in the first movie! <laughs> and with her kiss, brings him back to life! And he tells me, Well, if a kiss means that she has special powers, that makes the whole movie even worse. (laughs) Did you know that The Matrix 4, this time it's personal, sucks because it has a girl in it? It has a girl in it, and she has powers. It's a new Matrix! Scott, it's a new Matrix! They explain the plot within the movie. What do you not understand? I think this is our, our next Patreon show. Oh, no, my God, Scott. Oh, my God. I feel like this person has not even watched the first three movies. Oh, my God. I just can't. I just can't. Oh, my God. I ha- Scott, I have to stay away from the internet. I really do. Don't we all? I told you you didn't need to go posting oh, about it. You're I, inviting I this. Fucking... Yeah. So, could could you close the door? Oh, I'll close your door. <laughs> anyway, hope you enjoyed our supplemental guest review. <laughs> I mean, it was fine. <laughs>